even come to church this morning because of the subject. The subject this morning is called the wrath of God. I can assure you that it made me uncomfortable preparing a message like this, but it is part of being faithful to Scripture to deal with things that make us necessarily uncomfortable. These are things that we don't like to think about God, and in some cases we don't like to think about how they apply back to our own lives. How does God relate to us? In the world and the culture that we live in today, it is much more common to want to portray God as a God of love, a God of tolerance, a God of acceptance, a God of comfort. And you know what? For a good majority of our time together in church, that's a good thing to focus on. And so one Sunday out of a year, which in this year it'll be just one Sunday, where we've really, we're going to unpack this idea that there's more to God than just his love. He is a full embodied person. And in fact, we are created in his image. We've talked about that. He is a God that uh, imbued us with emotions and therefore we can probably attribute some emotions to him, but, but not human emotions. And we just need to take some time to really dig into the attribute of God that deals with his wrath or his anger or in some cases where scripture calls it him being furious. But in order to do that, I'm going to start in the New Testament and I'm going to start at a place where you might not expect me to start. We're going to start by looking at the cross. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, today... It's hard to talk about a concept like the wrath of God and still call you good and faithful Father. Today, Lord, as we take some time to dig into this matter, this subject, and try to decipher who you are in the midst of of our culture, in the midst of our understandings of who you are, which are so laden with our history and our background and our upbringing. Lord, I just pray for the divine inspiration of your spirit to guide us through this time together today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you this question to start with. Does God... Love us. How do you know? Can you prove it? Some of you undoubtedly are wrestling in your mind like, oh boy, he just put me on the spot. Um, some of you in your minds are going to go to stories like the prodigal son, right? Some of you Bible scholarly types and Bible quizzing types, you're going to start quoting scripture after scripture after scripture. Uh, and you don't have to be like a longtime church member to know something like John 3.16. You see it on bumper stickers, right? Or you could go to 1 John chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8 and you could read about God's love and, and that sort of thing. And, 
just when you do that, when you try to answer, does God love us, and you try to prove it with Scripture, you're essentially saying, because the Bible tells me so. And some of you are thinking of a nice little children's song, right? I don't have to sing it, right? Of course, the Bible does tell us so. But I think in some cases when we stop there, like Jesus loves me and the Bible tells me so, it, it's good enough for our children, it's good enough for Sunday school, and in some cases it's good enough for many of us. Because to get to a place where we say, God loves me because the Bible tells me so, that's a, that's a big hurdle to climb for a lot of people in our world. So, that's good. But this morning, I want to press in a little bit more and say that I think, I know, there's more to the story of the Bible tells me so. Yes, indeed, God loves us. And, and for some of you, if you kept pressing, if you kept digging a little bit, you would ultimately find your way back to the cross. How do we know that God loves us? Well, the cross. And for sure, absolutely, I would agree with you that we could point to the cross of Jesus Christ. We could point to the cross upon which he died and we could say with 100% certainty that that declares God's love for us. It is an ultimate expression of his love. But then what I would have to do is I would have to ask you why. Why does the cross demonstrate God's love? Think about it. The heinous and ugly cruelty of the cross. And yet we say that that is supposed to represent God's love. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile that? In a couple minutes, we'll talk about it, alright? It's a question that I want us all to be thinking about. None of us as parents actually could imagine sacrificing any of our children, much less our only firstborn child, for the sake of someone else who actually lived in rebellion toward us or toward our family. In fact, Don and Carol Richardson were missionaries in the middle of the 20th century to Netherlands, New Guinea. And they were ministering to a cannibalistic tribe known as the Sawi people. And it wasn't until, I'm going to make a very long story short, you can read about it in their book called The Peace Child, but it wasn't until they were able to share this idea that God sent His only Son as an innocent child to become this peace child for His people that the Sawi people began to recognize that God actually was good and loved them and could be trusted. Because up till that point in sharing the gospel, guess who their main character was? The one that they celebrated. Judas. They loved Judas because Judas tricked Jesus. And that's what the Sawi people lived by was trickery and treachery. And in their cannibalistic culture, they would set people up, fatten them up from somebody else's tribe, make them think that they were one, and then they would kill them and eat them. They loved Judas. But they could not comprehend until this idea of the peace child came in and 
told them a different story. Jesus sent this innocent child to be like us. We're going to talk a lot more about that in about a month as we get into the Christmas and holiday season. Not only was he sinless, innocent baby, he was an innocent, guiltless adult who dies this ultimately ugly, sacrificially awful death on a cross. And in some kind of mysterious way, we're supposed to know that there's a loving motivation that defies our comprehension and demonstrates God's profound love. So, why do we know God loves us? Because of the cross. But the cross is all at once beautiful and ugly. But it's not really meant to be a mystery. It does, however, force us to go a little bit more uncomfortably deeper than just the recognition that God loves us. J.M. Boyce, he's an author of the book called Foundations of the Christian Faith, a readable theology. He says this, If the coming of Christ is only an open declaration of God's favor towards women and men, a demonstration by which God seeks to capture our attention and win our love, then our condition, as we stand in alienation from God, is not serious. What he's implying, and I would agree, is that our comprehension of the cross is quite limited. If we think of it as too much about God being desperate to win our love. And isn't that the picture that so many in our culture have painted of the cross? God's desperate for you and me. But that's not the case. So how does the cross truly demonstrate God's love? Biblically speaking, this is where we get into the idea of wrath, of God's wrath coming into play. And it's hard to comprehend the need for the cross if we cannot embrace and understand the wrath of God. You see, the Bible teaches us that God created us to be like him so that he could relate to us and we to him and live and commune with us and share true life together. That was Eden, the Garden of Eden. That is the new kingdom of God. That is eternity with Christ. That is the goal, is to be one together. But when sin entered the picture, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, by the temptation to be like God... A separation occurred. Mind you, it was not initiated at first by God, that separation, but it was initiated by the shame that was immediately felt by Adam and Eve. They couldn't approach God. You can read about it in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. God subsequently pronounced judgment. But he cared for them, nonetheless, He made some clothing for them and and all of that, but the judgment occurred when he put them outside of the garden and he closed it off. His intimate and close relationship with his people became this separate and distant relationship. Judgment was pronounced because of sin. But it was judgment with a promise. It was a promise that one day he would fix it. It was a judgment with a promise. 
but it was judgment nonetheless. The consequences, we would say, of wayward and self-centered, rebellious and sinful living. Mankind has experienced, therefore, a mixture of this love and wrath ever since. In doing some research for this and reading several different authors, I pulled together uh, a summary statement of to define for you what I think wrath means, define uh, divine wrath. And here's what I've come up with. Divine wrath is God's righteous anger provoked by sin and the subsequent consequences associated with his allowing us to have what our sinful hearts desire. That's a mouthful. But notice some key phrases in there. Righteous anger, provoked only by sin, and the consequence of wrath being only that he gives us what we say we desire, and that is independence from him. In the Bible, let's focus on that word anger for a minute. In the Bible, it is often portrayed in human terms, which is a bit unfortunate for us. But we hear phrases in the Bible like God's anger or God is furious with us. Let me just read a passage for you from Ezekiel chapter 21. And I'll read just verses 3 and 4. It says this, tell her, and he's talking through Ezekiel to Israel. Tell her, this is what the Lord says. I am your enemy, O Israel, and I am about to unsheath my sword to destroy your people, the righteous and the wicked alike. Yes, I will cut off both the righteous and the wicked. I will draw my sword against everyone in the land from the south to the north. Can you imagine somebody in our world today just picking up the Bible and open up to Ezekiel 21? Like, is that any image of God that we want people to know about? And, and truth be told is, no, I mean, obviously not. But out of context? In fact, what I would say is, like, does that image, God just wiping out indiscriminately righteous and unrighteous, does that image have any bearing on the Jesus that we see in the New Testament? The answer is no and yes. Because it's not quite that simple. You see, our view of anger is heavily colored by human anger and our experience with it. In fact, Hollywood is built on the concept of vengeance and revenge and wrath. Our human views of anger and love, our human views of anything, often shape our view of God. Dr. Greg Boyd has enlightened me to the idea that many pagan religions, including the Greeks who influenced the writing of the New Testament and other religions that had these what we would call warrior God deities, that they have painted God in ways that look like cosmic, superhuman versions of humans. We make gods and Religions have done this for centuries. We make gods into cosmic versions of ourselves. And therefore we attribute to those gods our human feelings and emotions. But just on a cosmic scale, supernatural scale. 
And so you get this idea of gods that are sitting up in heaven like Zeus just throwing lightning bolts and doing all this kind of stuff indiscriminately. And you can read about the Greek gods and this idea that God is just random and doing all this stuff. Well, when the authors of the Old Testament, so says Greg Boyd and some other authors, when the authors of the Old Testament were writing, they might have had some of that influence in their mind. And in fact, when they were writing stories about our God, it seemed good to them to paint him to be just like those other gods because he was bigger and better than some of those other gods. And so it was honoring to him to paint him in that fashion. Well, that's a little bit of a, of a new perspective on some of this. I'm not trying to undermine the fact that maybe emotionally there is something to do with this righteous anger. But we also understand that the Bible was written by human authors and there's this interplay that was going on at those times and the God of the Old Testament has a slightly different perspective than the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Jesus being the exact representation of who God was and we have to work those two things together. The reality is that when we overlay our human conceptions upon deity forms, we get imperfect views of God. And it is upon us to examine our views and change them accordingly to match the Bible. Whether confronting modern superhuman or superhero mythology, or the old Greek and Roman mythology, our view of God must be according to the Bible and not that. Or we will unnecessarily have an imperfect, unflattering, and undesirable, even downright unapproachable view of God. So if we work on disassociating our views of anger from God's righteous anger, let's examine that for a minute. First and foremost, God is not, my new favorite word of the week, capricious. So you're going to hear me say that a couple more times. He is not capricious. In other words, he is not easily offended. He doesn't react to us in the same ways that we often experience anger, either from our parents or our spouse or our children. That's not God flying off the handle just because we did one thing wrong or this or that. That's not who God is. And yet so often our view of God is in that light. He is not easily provoked. He's not changing with his emotions. How many of you felt a little bit better today with an extra hour of sleep? I know I did, right? You know, my emotions, my view of the world is just slightly better. And the sun helped, right? And the colors, it's... But that's not God. He didn't didn't feel better today because he got a better hour of sleep, right? He didn't... He doesn't change with what he eats. He doesn't change with his level of stress. There's a lot going on in the world. God might be a little stressed, right? No, that's not God. And yet, in our lives, that is how we often portray him. We think of him through our own lens. Exodus 34, 6 says it this way, and he passed in front of Moses, this is God, proclaiming this truth. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The psalmist would say it this way in almost exactly the same words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Psalm 103 and verse 8. In fact, if we go back to our story of Ezekiel 21, those first few verses, if you were to go back into Ezekiel 20, which is quite a long chapter and we're not going to read it, but 
you would read of a long list of times that God lays out for his people over many, many generations of how they pushed him away, how they disregarded him, disobeyed him, didn't follow through on his commands or love him in any kind of way. In fact, they prostituted themselves to the other deities of the world. You could read about all the times God says, I should have wiped you out then, but I didn't. I should have wiped you out then, but I didn't. I should have wiped you out. He just kept relenting, 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 hoping that his people would change. And they didn't. They didn't. God doesn't react in a moment. He is slow to anger, abounding in love. The judgments that he pronounces and those that you could find in Ezekiel 21, they're not a short-term response, but a long-term response to a prolonged and willful disregard of his laws and of him. Any anger that we ascribe to God, any view of that anger that we ascribe to Him, must be seen through His righteousness, must be seen through His holiness, and must be seen ultimately as His love of His people. His anger, any of it, is always fixated on one thing. Sin. Rebellion against Him and disobedience to His loving laws and His commandments. We never really have to wonder if God is pleased with us or not. And some of us live in fear of that. Is God pleased with me? Am I doing His will? Am I doing the right things? We don't have to live in wonder and fear of that. We can know. A simple test is, am I striving to do what He tells me to do? Am I striving to live according to His Word? If I am, maybe even imperfectly, but if I love Him to the best of my ability, if I strive to be like Him, if I believe in who He is and His Son, Jesus Christ, I don't have to wonder. God loves me and God will fight for me and work for my behalf, my better good. I don't have to wonder about that. But, if I, in rebellion, choose to do things my way, if I choose to just give in to my desires, my flesh, the things that make me feel good, the things that I think, the things that the world says I need, if I just give in to all of that and I disregard God, I walk away from God, I don't have to wonder. He's not there in the same way as He is when I give my whole heart to Him. Is He available? Yes, He's available. But He will Remain as distant as you keep him to be. It is possible, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, to be angry and not sin. It says he, don't anger, right? In your, I'm sorry, don't sin. In your anger, do not sin. I don't recommend that kind of anger, and in fact, neither did Paul, but That kind of righteous anger is difficult to put into action. But I mention it only because I think it reveals a little bit about God. He made us in His image. We have emotions. Therefore, I think God likely has emotions too. But they're not, my favorite word, 
capricious. He exhibited righteous anger while he was walking on the earth. Remember that time in the temple with the whips and kind of clearing out the money changers out of the temple? Do you think God was angry in that moment? I don't think you can whitewash that in any way, shape, or form. God was, Jesus in that moment was angry. But notice his anger, I don't think it was personal. It's not like he was lashing out at one person and saying, I'm angry at you. What was he lashing out against? He was offended at the system that evolved in the temple and the worship and the extortion that was happening against people who were poor, the roles that had been set up and the abuse and the perversion of his law, the subjugation of those who were not in power. He was reacting to something that wasn't the way he had designed it to be. Was Jesus angry? I think he was. But was it justifiable? Can't you even relate just a little bit to that when you think about fighting on behalf of the poor? Or anybody in our world that gets taken advantage of? If any sort of anger flares up inside you, I mean, the injustices that are occurring today, just some of them around immigration or race or the poor, the marginalized, if you can relate to any of that, just something rising up within you, maybe, just maybe you get a little sense of what righteous anger looks like. It's not personal. It's about a system. It's about sin. It's about injustice. It's about things that aren't going the way God intended them to go. And He can't tolerate that forever. Because that's not what He designed the world to be. He will not tolerate it forever. That is the essence of the wrath of God. Is God angry? Definitely not as I understand human anger. At best, I think he's angry for me, not against me. Unless I'm choosing to be against him. Any concept of his anger really points us back to his love demonstrated on the cross. His love to redeem us. So let's come back to the first question. Does God love us? Why? He loves us. Because he sent his son to pay the penalty for that sin that separates us from him. If I can't possibly do that on my own because of my sinful nature... And yet, in that state, he made a way for me to be restored. Then I begin to grasp the depths of what his love means for me. First John 4.10 would say it this way. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It wasn't just because he was desperate for us. It was that he had to pay the penalty for our sinfulness. J. Boyce says this again in the same book. Within this framework, the love of God is not merely some indulgent feeling of goodwill, which is what human love often is. It is rather an intense, demanding, holy love that is willing to pay the greatest price in order to save the one loved. 
In the first few chapters of Romans, Paul lays it out. He lays out his claim to this very process. In chapter 1, he describes how Gentiles, the the non-Jewish humanity, has all the revelation it needs in creation to know, to love, and to be in relationship with Christ. But they are hell-bent on doing things their own way, according to what they feel and according to what they think. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on into chapter 2 and he says that the Jewish humanity, they had a deeper revelation. And they, in their perceived morality, also rejected the Messiah. They missed the mark, as did the Gentiles, of knowing their need for Christ's salvation. Because they had the law, they perceived they only needed liberation from occupying powers so that they could continue to be the chosen people. In the process... They missed that they had as much need for Christ as anyone. In that sense, Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in Romans 5, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his one and only son into the world, and whoever believes in him is restored to that relationship that he laid out from the beginning of creation. Back to my point for today. If I ask you, again, why God loves you, and you point to the cross, which you should, you must explain why he was there to begin with. Why was the cross important? The cross was important because it became, here's a fancy word for you, propitiation means to appease or to make atonement for. He became the propitiation of God's wrath against sin. The cross is important because of what God had to do through the cross to reconcile us to him. Let me put it in these words. God's love is demonstrated in that he became, through his son, His own propitiation for the sin that drives us away from Him. Maybe more simply, he says, I say it this way. He loved us so much, He appeased Himself to have ultimate victory. He did the hard work so that we could be connected to Him. His wrath was poured out on the cross. The cross of Christ, this comes from the same book again, the cross of Christ means, among other things, that our state is desperate. So desperate, in fact, that there is no hope for us except there. We are, as Paul says, dead through trespasses and sins, prisoners of the prince of the power of the air, and by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's in Ephesians chapter 2. These truths are taught so that men and women might turn out of a sense of frightful spiritual danger to the Savior. We wouldn't completely understand God's love for us were it not to be in contrast to what we call His wrath against sin. In the kindest terms, we should be aware and in awe of His wrath. He cannot and He will not tolerate sin. In another sense, if we have faith in Jesus, we have crossed a big chasm of separation 
where now Christ is the one interceding on our behalf. He made the way for us. So yes, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the reason we know God loves us. But without the why, the need to satisfy his wrath, we miss the full picture of who God is. I've developed a small little study guide that goes along with this because there is way more to dig into on this subject than we could do this morning. In coming through this, I come to a new appreciation of what it means to be surrendered to this awe-inspiring God. I don't think I know, coming through a study like I've come through this week, I did not come out of it more afraid of God. And if that represents your position relative to God, afraid or fearful of how he treats his people and arbitrarily casting judgment and demonstrating harsh things towards his people, that's not the God that I came away from studying this week. But he is, a, he is a God that loves us so much that he poured out his wrath on his own son on the cross. And yet, in that moment, and Dr. Boyd helped me see this a little bit this week, notice that God was never angry with Jesus at the cross. He was never angry at Jesus. And yet it was upon Jesus that he poured out all of his wrath. He had to do it so that we could be reconciled to him. That is an indescribably big price that God paid so that you and I could have relationship with him. And therefore I come away with a new appreciation of his intolerance for sin. Of his intolerance for a life that thumbs our noses at his laws and his commands and his ways of living, we dare not take it lightly. I'm not going all the way Jonathan Edwards on you this morning. Some of you will know that reference, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I'm not going there. We could read, I read that sermon again this this week, and uh, man, oh man, if you want to be scared into heaven, read Jonathan Edwards' sermon. I don't think that that's where I want to go with this. It's not about fear. It's not about being scared. It's about recognizing how deep, how big the price was that God paid because of His desire to restore us and His inability to tolerate sin. So I'm going to leave you with that thought today and invite you, if you haven't already been a part of a life group, Our life groups are going to be digging into this a little bit more this week. You are welcome to join them. We have them listed on our website. You can talk to us and uh, we can dig a little bit more into what it means. The wrath of God. But it's a part of who he is. So I invite you, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. They're going to lead us just quietly and we're going to respond as we usually do. Take some time to think about what the Lord's saying to you even now as we prepare for the communion elements.
What about our own lives? Does God want us to examine, to take a little bit more reflection time? You can write that out on a card in the back of your seat. There are cards. We call them prayer cards. They're also connection cards. You can register that you are with us, visiting with us. We'd love to know that so that we can follow up with you, but then also write a prayer on the back of one of those cards and we will pray with you through our prayer teams. In just a couple minutes, I'll come back and we will receive our elements, the communion together. Heavenly Father, it is sobering. Not fearful. To truly understand the price that you paid for us on the cross. The cross does absolutely represent the depths that you went to. 